Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Most aviation accidents aren't a result of a single malfunction or a single catastrophic event. It's usually a series of smaller problems that happen that lead up to disaster. Welcome to episode 11 of Fatal Voyage, the death of JFK Jr. I'm retired homicide detective Colin McLaren. In the last episode, we heard how in the aftermath of John Jr.'s plane crash, many believed his sudden death could not have been an accident. Among them, former National Enquirer editor Barry Levine. JFK Jr.'s plane crash tragedy all these years later is still mirrored in some controversy because there are conspiracy theories that believe that JFK Jr. did not lose control of the plane, but in fact might have been assassinated while his plane was in the air. And there's a couple stories behind this conspiracy theory. Number one, you have some people who had been on the shore off of Martha's Vineyard who believed that they saw some streaks of light in the air at the time Kennedy's plane was believed to have gone into its death spiral, which led some theorists to believe that the Kennedy plane could have been shot out of the sky with a, a laser-targeted weapon. The belief on that is that the assassins could have been in a small boat off the shore following the plane on radar to the point where it reached a point in the sky where they were able to train their laser-guided missile to destroy the plane. As we have heard, some of these reasons are more compelling than others. But for my money, let's try to pin down exactly what happened that night. And I want to follow what really matters to a detective in a proper investigation. Facts, facts, and more facts. There's a belief that everybody in the world is murdered without any evidence. And I mean, there's gossip, speculation, rumors. How many different stories that you have about Jimmy Hoffa's murder or John Kennedy, his father's assassination and Robert Kennedy's assassination and Robert Kennedy killed Marilyn Monroe. I mean, I, I just... Um, you know, without evidence, it's just everybody has a story to tell. I'm not impressed by all that. Amongst those I will talk to is Richard Bender, an air crash investigator who was part of the investigative team tasked with examining the wreckage of John Jr.'s plane. 
and his bottom line is pretty blunt. We found nothing wrong with the airplane at all that was pre-impact damage. Everything was impact or post-impact damage to the airplane. So that rules out bombing. And just as I did when I was looking into Junior's dealings with the FBI, both as a suspect and potential victim of serious crimes, I've again teamed up with James Robertson to unearth official files. In this case, it's the government report into that final fateful flight. And I have to say, it was a very hard document to get hold of. James, have you seen this? The National Transport Safety Board. This is 30-odd pages. This is the actual... I guess the final report. Who was this done by, sorry? This was... The NTSB, the National okay. Transport Safety Board, and it's the final report. OK, signed off. There's no doubt about it. But it's the very first half a dozen words of the, this massive report. The non-instrument rated pilot obtained weather forecast. This guy didn't have a rating for instruments. And it's night time. What's, what's that about? So uh, I'm, I'm reading this to, to assume that Number one, the analysis is he should not have been up in the air. Well, there's different levels. I've only had a few lessons, but there's different levels of flying a plane. But you, one one license you can get, and, and this is sort of from the the lower level going up, is visuals only, where you just get up there in the daytime, the sunny blue sky, and off you go from A to B, and all the skills involved in that. And then there's another level, which is your instrument-rated pilot licence, and on and on it goes, you can go on forever. But he hasn't got any instrument ratings, therefore how can he fly overnight? Well, um, someone's got to sort of trawl through this. This is, this is going to be fascinating for a guy that shouldn't be up in the sky at night if he can't read instruments, and, and the crash happens well and truly at night. What was the conditions like? Have you heard what sort of conditions? I mean, from, from the news reports I've read and the witnesses there at the time, everyone is saying the same thing. This was a dangerous night. It was dark. The weather was, was foggy. You could barely see 10 yards in front of you, uh, let alone trying to fly a plane. The NTSB report is a dense and jargon-filled document of nearly 40 pages. But its final conclusions are clear. John Jr.'s death, was a result of pilot error. Jeff Gazzetti was a member of the NTSB investigative team who compiled that report. He says that all of their conclusions are drawn from cold scientific facts. So while the airplane did not have a black box or any recording features, it was being tracked and recorded on radar. And so every eight to 12 seconds, you'd have a radar hit. And so NTSB was able to take that recorded radar and we were able to reconstruct the flight. And we also were able to see the weather conditions and the lighting. That data builds a picture of Junior's final moments in stark detail. To understand the pilot's actions over Martha's vineyard, first we have to know that he banked hard right at one occasion in an almost constant roll angle then went vertical to 2,200 feet, then levelled out. He then climbed for 30 seconds, then banked southeast before levelling out again, then increased his speed, then banked left and increased his speed again at a 28 degree angle for 15 seconds, then levelled out again, then descended, then increased the angle to 45 degrees, then increased his downward speed and downward angle 
for 35 seconds. This is what is known to pilots as a graveyard spiral. 63 minutes into his flight, and imagine what Caroline and Lauren must have felt during all of this, the sheer horror to be part of a graveyard spiral. Clearly, he was unable to find the horizon or the beacon. And let's remember, he failed beacon training seven times only weeks earlier. So we know what happened. The question is why it happened. We've already heard that something Junior had a death wish. And over the past 10 episodes, we have learned how his supposedly gilded life was actually far from perfect, as everybody thought. What I needed to do was to get into an exact same plane as Junior's, along with Dylan Howard and James Robinson, and study the landscape, the forces and the conditions. This can't be solved in an office. Together, we headed out to Essex County Airport to mimic Junior's final flight. I'm out at Essex Airfield, and this is the airfield that JFK Jr. left from on his fatal voyage, finishing up in the Atlantic Ocean just off Martha's Vineyard. And the purpose of being here, and I'm with um, our executive producer, Dylan Howard, and also our chief investigative reporter, James Robinson. The three of us want to put together um, a, a real study on this is to see what went wrong and how the flight path eventuated. But the interesting thing is, it's the same Friday night or at the same time. It's uh, the same time of the year as the fatal crash. Uncannily, the weather conditions are very, very similar. So we're just waiting for the aircraft to taxi in and we've got ourselves a Piper Saratoga, identical type of aircraft as what was uh, owned by JFK Jr. So we're gonna jump on board shortly, take the exact flight path, all the loops, hoops, and all the problems that went with it, and see what happens. What's the purpose of recreating a flight path like this when you're reinvestigating a case, as we are, Colin? I guess it's the classic sort of Sherlock Holmes adage that you, you return to the scene of the crime. What that really means for the listeners is you really should go to the scene of the crime. In this, in, in this case, it's an aircraft that's up in the air, and it's a distance of about 63 minutes of fly time, and get a good feel. It, it, you get some sort of sense of what may have gone wrong, but also you get some sort of sense of all the things you could um, help, all, all those things that you can actually think about to try and discover the reasons for what went wrong. We're looking for causation. We're also looking to, to understand JFK Jr. A little, a little bit better. So you always should return to the scene of the crime, and, and that's the investigators as well as the criminals, and, and walk over it this case fly over it and try and touch and feel it and I found it like really interesting to take the same journey that he did 20 years ago from Manhattan here to really remote New Jersey uh, in peak hour traffic knowing that on that given day that fateful day for him he was under enormous pressure he had one passenger in the car with him a Carolyn Bassett was meeting him out here at the airport He'd had a tumultuous 24 to 48 hours. And the one thing that I was really like gobsmacked by in looking at these planes here at Essex and looking at the pipers that are there, just how tiny these aircrafts are. Yeah, they're like giant mosquitoes, aren't they? Really, we're gonna climb on board this particular piper in about 10 minutes and get up into that same flight path on this fatal voyage. So it's a little bit unnerving. One thing that 
we've established at this point is that Junior, JFK Junior, was not necessarily in the right frame to be flying a jet. Yeah, it, it seems to be when we've checked and checked and rechecked, and James has been part of this, we're getting our investigation spot on that we would really want to get the facts um, correct. And it seems to be that there was this angst. George Magazine was in trouble. His wife, he and his wife were pro probably best described as estranged, if not heading for divorce. And also he'd been sleeping at the Stanhope Hotel, uh, where his wife had been at the marital loft, the family home. So there's lots on his mind. His ankle injury is still a problem painkillers and of course there's this whisper that he was, had been drinking so poor JFK Jr by the time he arrived here out at Essex had a lot on his mind and he was about to board this very tiny plane. True crime mysteries Trying to get to the heart of stories that have more questions than answers is my passion. I feel compelled. It's like moving the pieces of a puzzle together. With each connection, I see more of the bigger picture. That's why I like to play Best Fiends. Best Fiends is an exciting puzzle that challenges your brain while not being too difficult. Perfect for any kind of downtime, Best Fiends lets you collect adorable characters as the story advances from level to level and you don't need an internet connection to play. Plus, they're always putting out new themed challenges, so the game is never boring. I find myself playing Best Fiends whenever I have downtime. With over 100 million downloads, I'm clearly not the only one who's obsessed. As more of my family and friends have started playing, we've gotten into some pretty friendly competitions surrounding our progress in the game, and I'm determined to come out on top. I love that it's a fun reason to keep our text chains going while we're social distancing too. Start playing today. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. And you can even play online. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Another key element to solving this was the time at which John Jr. took off. He was originally booked to fly before 6pm, when the light would still have been very good. But in reality, he didn't take to the air until over two and a half hours later, on the edge of darkness. Here's reporters Linda Massarella and Leon Wagner. They were running late. It was becoming dark. It was a, a long weekend. They had to get to the wedding. He was running late and he was starving, he was hungry. Now remember, this guy needs a lot of calories because he's exercising all the time. Carolyn was of course late with her sister, as they always were, and it became dusk uh, when they took off. And um, in the summertime, flying from uh, New York up to the vineyard, the conditions over the ocean are incredibly foggy. I'm sure that all the stuff, the things that were on his mind, 
the end of the magazine, the end of his marriage, all this was weighing on him. Pilot Kyle Bailey watched the Kennedys take off. He arrived at the airport, I want to say, approximately 8 p.m. with his sister-in-law, Lauren. And from what I understand, they were running a little bit late. He had some editorial meetings at the George offices. Earlier in the day, he was trying to get more investors to put money into the magazine. And then his wife arrived shortly after in a black Lincoln town car. So they pretty much were mulling around JFK Jr. and Lauren. And as Barry Levine explains, Jr. attempted the flight without an instructor on board. Given he had only logged 9.4 hours of night flying, all of them with an instructor, this was highly unusual and surely reckless. And I believe that's the key here. His life is a mess, he's refused to have an instructor with him, and night is setting in. Normally on a nighttime flight or a early evening flight, John would be accompanied on the flight by his regular flight instructor who was still working with him. This gentleman, unfortunately, had gone off on vacation to Europe over the summer, and John decided on his own that he could handle this trip without hiring another flight instructor to accompany him in the cockpit of the plane. My eyes weren't on the plane the whole time. I really had no idea if there was an instructor on the airplane because I wasn't focused on it. So, number one, I didn't know who was on the airplane, whether he had an instructor or not. You know, I made the comment one time, I said, you know, when I saw it take off, I hope he does have an instructor on the airplane. But it, it would be inappropriate of me not knowing who's on the airplane or even what experience he had. I believe my parents said to me that night, oh, did he have an instructor? And I'm, you know, I said, I, I, I don't know. I, I hope he did but I wasn't staring at the plane the whole night. Here's air crash investigator Richard Bender. He had done the trip several times with an instructor on board because he was new to this particular airplane that he was flying. This particular trip, he decided to do it on his own. I mean, he was licensed to and all that, but he didn't have an instrument rating. He was training to fly on instruments but uh, he hadn't gotten the rating yet and uh, took off out of New Jersey, flew up the coast. As it turned out, his wife and sister-in-law were both late getting to the airport, so he didn't take off until, I think it was like two hours after he was supposed to. By then, it's starting to get dusk. And, you know, of course, with dusk, the visibility decreases. If he had been able to go when he wanted to go, Kennedy, that is, then the instructor probably would have been able to go with it. But because of the lateness, he couldn't because he had another student scheduled. So that's why the instructor didn't go. And he advised Kennedy to stay on the ground. The NTSB report also revealed something very telling. Kennedy failed to lodge a flight plan. Was this due to his agitated state of mind, his inexperience, or another example of JFK Jr.'s recklessness? All of these factors came together to create the perfect storm. And let's not forget his badly broken ankle that restricted his mobility. It's as if Jr.'s inexperience and recklessness was dictating an end result. 
he was a visual flyer. But if, in fact, the visibility would become bad, John would really need to rely in that Piper Saratoga plane on the instruments. And he fully did not have an absolute clear understanding of flying a plane in bad visibility. We were able to track down two of the last men who saw him alive. One, in fact, was a man named Munir Hussan, who, in fact, was the previous owner of John's plane. And he was had just flown into the airport in Fairfield, New Jersey, on the night of July 16th, and realized that John was going to take off. And as the previous owner of the plane, Munir knew the plane's capabilities and was fearful of John flying over Long Island and into the Martha's Vineyard sound area because of the weather conditions on this particular night, knowing that visibility would be bad. And in fact, Munir had told us he had seen John at the airport and had said to his mechanic, is John going to fly tonight? He said the visibility is apparently going to be very, very bad. And Munir did not want John to fly this plane. He wanted to uh, get to him, to tell him, don't go up in the sky. But in fact, Munir was never able to get directly to John. And of course, there was terrible haze. And because John could not visually see the lights of Martha's Vineyard below, he had to rely on his instrument panel. The top pilot at the time, Bob Arnott, who's flown that route many times, told us that even if you could not see the island, it would have been extremely tricky flying off instruments to find the island. You could see the smog and the humidity and the reduced visibility in the air. So I was planning on flying to Martha's Vineyard that evening. I was checking my weather, you know, observing conditions at the airport, observing everything going on in the airport, and I decided not to fly based on a number of factors, and part of those factors were the weather conditions and the lower visibility, the humidity, and what I feared would be a low cloud deck and, and fog rolling in in the Martha's Vineyard area later that night. So I pretty much scrubbed my plans, I would say, about five or six that evening. And we know factually now, because we've spoken to so many people, that there was pilots telling him not to fly that night. He was heading into darkness. He wasn't instrument rated. In all honesty, though, this is a giant leap for us to be doing this, to be able to try and set upon the course that he did, um, to try and understand the flight path and the risk that he put himself and he put the two other passengers of the Piper in. And adding to that risk, he didn't bother to put a flight plan in. And now that's extraordinary. If, if he'd gone through all of this... That's illegal. You would think so. FAA, which of course is the governing body for all of these flights and the flight industry, um, they have strong regulations. I interviewed them today. I guess time heals. They didn't seem to be too fussed about it. But I think if it happened today with you or me, they'd throw the book at us. Who knows? JFK Jr. might have been treated a little bit more favourably. He'd flown this route before. This uh, was a. He'd, he'd flown this route before 11 times. 
this was something that was not uncommon to him. But to still not put a flight plan in place smacks of recklessness, smacks of perhaps pressure to get up into the sky and cutting corners. And a man with too much on his mind. Well, his friends as well at this period of his life called him the master of disaster. That's how reckless he was in his fearlessness. He was, they, they used to say, his friends would say, well, they couldn't go swimming in the ocean with him because he'd go out past the horizon. So maybe we might feel uncomfortable looking at the size of these aircrafts, like you say, which are giant mechanical mosquitoes and smaller than a Toyota Camry and is going to be taking us into the dark of the night and over the Atlantic Ocean. But for him, that was not so much as a care in the world. He, he clearly, even though I, I know we think that he had all this experience, but 36 hours of flight experience in the Piper Saratoga, which is the, the plane we're taking now, is a return journey from Manhattan to Sydney. But it's also symbolic of, I mean, his life story. I mean, though he was part of Camelot and we dreamed of him as America's prince, he was still quite reckless in life. He was a guy who didn't conform to what conventional wisdom of a dynasty would suggest. He was a guy who, you know, flunked the bar exam because he didn't study enough. Like, he just didn't do things that you would expect a Kennedy to do. My conversations with the air crash investigative team revealed another odd detail. Here's Jeff Gazzetti once more. I did find a curious finding that his frequency, when we took his radios, there was a a digit off on the frequency for Martha's Vineyard. And I don't know whether that was due to the impact or whether it was truly he just didn't have the proper frequency tuned in. I don't think it would have made much difference in the accident because Martha's Vineyard was an uncontrolled field. But that's really, you know, and I document that in the report. A digit off the proper frequency. Had Junior tuned his radio incorrectly, meaning he could not communicate with air traffic control? It might explain a shocking detail from that night, a detail which has remained hidden until now. I think the highlight of his recklessness is evidenced in what we saw in the NTSB report. And I spoke to the FAA about this again today. Uh, 12 minutes out of this flight, 12 minutes in the air, and we'll see this ourselves in 12 minutes as soon as we take off. He almost comes in contact, or certainly too close to proximity, to an American airline jetliner. And it's, it's full of passengers. It's at 6,000 feet. It's leveled out and it's heading towards one of the major airports, LaGuardia or JFK, obviously preparing to land. And out of nowhere comes JFK Jr. And the pilot of the commercial airliner was told by the air traffic controller to, to dive from 6,000 feet to 3,000 feet to avoid a potential collision. This is the height of his recklessness. But I say to that, and you can answer the question, Colin, because you have investigated this more closely than anyone. If you are in communication with the radio tower, you would avoid a situation about coming into contact with a commercial airliner that had the potential to be a catastrophic collision mid-sky. 
You certainly would, but the trouble is he wasn't communicating with anybody. It's on the documented Why? reports from the NTS and confirmed by the FAA again today. But why? He he wasn't on there, I'll, I'll get to that. He wasn't on the frequency, he wasn't talking to the air traffic controller at all from the moment the plane left here at Essex and, and it was all over. They never heard from him and the investigation found out and the director of the FAA told me only three or four hours ago that, that he wasn't able to communicate. So therefore the basics of just being able to set yourself up, set your radio and set your, your frequency up, he, he failed at that. So they, he was probably talking to them, but he was not getting anything back or vice versa. Okay, something weird happened out there in the dark. Now it's time to step aboard to recreate Junior's final flight. Cole Bailey explains the route Kennedy took. So when he's making the trip, say, from New Jersey to Martha's Vineyard, there are two routes to go. The safest route would be, you know, from Essex County Airport going towards Westchester Airport and then staying right up along the, the coast of Connecticut, all the way up along the coast till you're up around Providence, that area, and then cutting across. And you have a, a, a short little hop over water. There's the islands of Cuddyhunk which are right between, which you may or may not be able to see at nighttime if the visibility was really reduced, but that's the safest route. Unfortunately, the route that he chose was the Long Island route. So he opted to go over Long Island or in proximity of Long Island. And then right after Montauk, you're all the way over water from Montauk to Block Island, and then it's all over water. So you have less of a horizon. When you're over ocean, it's just all blackness if you can't see land. Richard Bender and Jeff Gazzetti offer their expert opinions. And he got up to uh, where he'd normally turn to go out to the vineyard. And I forget exactly where that was, somewhere around Rhode Island, Newport, Rhode Island, somewhere in that area. And he made the turn. And best we can tell from looking at the radar returns and what have you, he got into a situation which we called spatial disorientation. In other words, he wasn't able to recognize what the airplane was doing in response to its control inputs. And he lost, as soon as he turned, he lost the horizon completely because he's out over the water. It's now getting dark. And uh, he continued to fly toward the vineyard. And then for some reason, he made a couple of turns. Of course, we'll never know why he made the turns. He did at any rate. If you look at the recorded radar data laid out overlaid over a uh, sectional chart that's in the, the docket of the Antispe's report, it appears like he's on autopilot during his flight over the coastline. He flies straight down the coastline, very, very, it's a straight line at, a, at, at, a, at one altitude, so it looks like there's no problem there. It's when he turns out to the ocean where things are starting to uh, go awry, and I think he begins to hand fly, and I think he is having issues with that because he's uh, uh, typically a pilot of his experience level would not be able to hold uh, a consistent descent rate or a heading uh, perfectly, um, that, that he would be uh, just struggling with that. Uh, it would be more challenging for him to continue to scan his instruments in the cockpit as well as look outside. But he's looking outside, he can't really see Martha's Vineyard, he can't really see where the, the surface of the ocean is and where the sky is. So forced to go back inside every now and then, but there, 
he hadn't completed his instrument rating yet, so that would have been difficult for him. The sad part about it is if he had flown another 15 minutes on a straight and level course where heading in the same direction, he'd have come back over land over on the east side of Narragansett Bay, and he'd have been less than five miles from the vineyard at that point, and he would have still had visual reference when he made the turn. But because he didn't, he made the turn sooner than that. As I say, that's what he had, had done right along. And of course, as soon as he turned out over the water, he lost all visual reference. He'd done it, I don't know how many times, several times prior to that with his instructor. And that's why he was successful at it. But when he went out by himself, you know, he just didn't have the ability to do what he was supposed to do or should have done. And at that time, the airplane began a descent and that descent varied between 400 feet per minute and 800 feet per minute. So that's a bit inconsistent. It's, it's, it's descending, but it's descending slow and then it starts to descend fast. And then and about seven miles from Martha's Vineyard, the airplane began a right turn. And we can see that through the recorded radar. And then it stopped its descent at 2,200 feet, and then it climbed back up to 2,500 feet, and then it entered a left turn. And while it was in a left turn, it began another descent that was accelerated at about 900 feet per minute, the airspeed increasing, until the airplane's rate of descent was close to 5,000 feet per minute. Sitting in the back of this pipe of Saratoga, we're moments away from recreating the most telling moment of this charter as part of this particular podcast and that is a recreation of the death spiral that john f kennedy jr and his two passengers faced as i look out to my right i see nothing but darkness it's gray there's not an inch of land inside i see speckles of light in the far distance. And as I look forward to our pilot, Dave and Colin McLaren, what is in front of them is exactly the same. Okay, boys. Yep. yep. It is, it is pure, pure grayness. And we're about to go to a third of the velocity that JFK did as he went down to his grave. What our pilot's going to do now, we're at 5,500 feet and we're only um, 34, 32 miles west of Martha's Vineyard. As I look down now, it's pitch black. There's a couple of twinkly lights ahead and at 5,500 feet, our pilot's going to replicate what actually happened with JFK Jr. And, he, and we're doing it right now. He, at one minute he was leveled out, next minute he descended then he climbed, then he went to the left and went to the right. He, now we're banking 28 degrees to the left. And there's nothing wrong with that, That's all, oh, it's all fine. Now we're dipping, descending, and we're going to climb. And then all of a sudden, he's going to take us into a 45 degree angle. This 45 degree angle 
the pilot has already told me he does not like doing this, never does this, only does it in training once every six months, he's required to do it and he's not comfortable with do it, doing it and we're doing it now, 45 degree angle and he's banging to the right and this is unhealthy stuff, this is very uncomfortable stuff, in fact I, I'm thumbs up now that he pulls out of this and corrects it and levels out. I don't like this. It's like This is like being in a washing machine. Up, down, left, right, and now the right bend is 45 degree angle and I don't like it. Going in for a landing at night through the haze can easily cause a pilot to descend at a dangerously steep angle and not know it. And of course John's instinctive reaction in the cockpit when he was losing control was to pull the controls back to get the nose of the plane up. But this action, of course, when you're dropping that way is disastrous because all it's causing the aircraft to do is drop into a high-speed spiral and that sadly would seal John's fate. People think hitting the water is like not as bad as hitting ground, but the bottom line is hitting water probably is worse. JFK Jr. definitely did not intend to fly at night. He intended on conducting this flight a lot earlier, long before sunset. But because his, uh, his two passengers were, were stuck in traffic in Manhattan, he got a late start. It was still light out when he departed, but I don't think he really thought through that he would be arriving at night, and he really thought through the fact that marginal visual conditions, along with the night, along with the no horizon over the ocean, would have been a problem. Uh, and this happens all the time. So I think the FAA would, uh, you know, even after this accident, the FAA reminded pilots about ensuring that you don't fly above and beyond your own personal limits. Uh, even if it is visual flight rules, the visibility and the cloud ceilings, you should be comfortable flying in that. And if you're not, then sure, you should get an instructor or just not go at all. But in this case, the way the whole thing uh, percolated up, uh, with the current forecast and everything like that, there was nothing egregious about what he did uh, on the face of it. You know, he had 350 hours. He has halfway done with his instrument rating. Uh, legally, he was legal to fly as per the technical weather standards. But really, given his experience level and his particular skill level, in hindsight, he probably should not have taken that flight or he should have accepted the offer of a flight instructor to come with him. A final word from the last man to see Junior alive, Kyle Bailey. You know, you could play the overconfidence part anyway. I mean, there's both sides to the argument. And what I call it the falling domino theory. So if you could envision each one of those little problems as a domino. So once one domino falls, it takes everything with them. Each domino represents a single minor problem. And as each one starts to fall, it's taking everything down. And the end result is the whole stack falling over. And at the end of the line of fallen dominoes is disaster. In this case, the airplane crashing into the ocean and three people tragically losing their lives. So as a pilot, you have to be aware of that. So in this case, I'm sure he was very confident as a Kennedy. I mean, he was a smart guy, he went to law school. Maybe he said to himself, 
hey, you know what? I think I could do this. I need to do it by myself for once. You know, if I had passengers in the, in the back, I would always keep that in mind that, you know, your, their lives are in your responsibility. Just like when you're on an airplane and the pilots are up there, they realize that they have 150 passengers behind them and, you know, it doesn't matter about making money or anything like that, that their lives are critical. My investigation into the life and needless death of John F. Kennedy Jr. and his two companions is almost complete. And my conclusion is clear. I do not believe he was the victim of any assassination or targeted hit, as his father and uncle were. All of my experience and expertise as a homicide detective leads me to conclude that his death and the deaths of Carolyn and Lauren Bassett were a terrible and completely preventable accident brought about by a number of factors that include in no small part John Jr's own recklessness, overconfidence and sense of immortality. But what was to happen after his death was, I think, a conspiracy unto itself. One every bit as insidious as anything the fantasists could dream up and involving the Kennedys themselves. Next time, on the final episode of Fatal Voyage, the death of JFK Jr. You cannot stop a body from being cremated if that is the family's decision. Uh, but yes, once you cremate, then you are obviously destroying any opportunity uh, for someone to do a follow-up examination. The Death of JFK Jr. is hosted by myself, Colin McLaren. It's executive produced by Dylan Howard and Matt Sprouse and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett and the series is written by Dominic Gutton. Reporting by Douglas Montero, the series is mixed and engineered by Sean Crabbit and Sam Adder. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, The Death of JFK Jr. wherever you get your podcasts.